Brothers, I am so excited to be back with you as we start out this series, actually back in the series this fall, as we hope to complete Genesis by December. Um, although we don't get to be back together quite yet, um, but under the circumstances, I'm just thankful. Uh, thankful that there's almost 150 men who register to study God's Word uh, together. And I'm hoping, I'm hoping that all of you are in small groups of some sort using this material and the discussion questions. And let me just say this before we dive into it, that if you're not in a small group, uh, please contact us. If you want to be, please contact us. We'd love to go into a small group of some sort, an amen small group. We're going to be in Genesis 35 today. And I have to tell you that today's study um, was particularly impactful for me personally. In fact, uh, during uh, my time of study, particularly on Monday, I found myself weeping as I felt like the Holy Spirit was speaking to me about things in my life and the grace that God has poured out of my life, despite some of the difficulties that I've had to face. And I'm excited to be able to share that with you all as we look at God's Word uh, today. And I'm I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray right now that God will, will speak to you. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you and praise you for the beauty and the power of your word. And I do pray, Father, despite uh, these bizarre circumstances in which we study God's word together and yet remotely, Lord, that you would overcome that, your Holy Spirit would speak, uh, and that you would work in us. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you look there on your notes, uh, I made the point of saying we need to have a little introduction here. And I think it's just important for us before we read Genesis 35 that we remember uh, Bethel. Uh, we remember that in Genesis 28, um, God revealed himself to Jacob. That was the whole Jacob's ladder thing. And at that point, uh, God revealed his presence to Jacob, says, I'm going to be with you. He poured out his grace on Jacob because Jacob didn't deserve to have that moment. And the ladder didn't require Jacob to go up, but it was the angels, remember, going up and down that were bringing uh, God's word, God's message to Jacob. And again, God made promises uh, to Jacob about what he was going to do, what God was going to do uh, through Jacob, through his family. And you remember it ended with Jacob making a vow, saying, God, if you'll do these things, then I'm going to follow you. And it wasn't so much conditional, uh, though Jacob and his uh, young faith, he wasn't a, necessarily a young man, uh, didn't quite fully understand stand what it meant to really follow God, really fulfill that vow. But we're going to see today, uh, as we kind of conclude the story of Jacob, even though Genesis mentions Jacob uh, and he doesn't die until a little bit later, this part of Genesis really wraps up, Genesis 35 wraps up the story of Jacob. So let's read uh, together Genesis 35 says this, God said to Jacob, arise and go up to Bethel and dwell there and make an altar there to God who prepared, who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the Terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon all the cities that were around them. 
So they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an an altar, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under the oak below Bethel. So he called its, its name Alan Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came up from Padan Haram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give this land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him, Bethel. Then he journeyed from Bethel. And when they were still some distance from Ephrath, Rachel went into labor and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, do not fear for you have another son. And her soul was departing for she was dying. She called, and as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Benoni, but his father called him Benjamin or Benjamin. And so Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent near the, beyond the tower of Eden, Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Jacob were twelve, the sons of Leah, Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's servant, Dan, and Naphtali, the sons of Zilpah, Leah's servant, Gad, and Asher. These were the sons of Jacob who were born to him in Padan Aram. And Jacob went to his father Isaac at Mamre in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. Now the days of Isaac were 180 years, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died, and was gathered to his people old and full of days, and his sons Esau and Jacob had buried him. Brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want us to see in the passage that is before us three things that God is doing, three things that God is causing to happen in uh, Jacob, things that are helpful for us to understand even as we see them in our own lives. The first thing we see is finally here, Jacob truly submitting to God's sanctifying work. Barton mentioned last week when we looked at chapters 33 and 34, that in chapter 34, there was no mention of God in the entire chapter. And yet here in this chapter, chapter 35, even as we only get to verse 15, I think it is, God's name is mentioned 11 times. And that's not even counting the phrase El Bethel or Bethel, house of God. 
And so here, God is prominent. And something is happening in Jacob. And the first thing that we're seeing is happening is that he he's in submission to the sanctifying work of God, the, the setting apart that God has always intended and was doing in Jacob's life. And we see this described for us first in the, the putting away that takes place in verse 2. Notice that. So Jacob said to his household and to all her with them, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves. Go ahead and put those things away, foreign gods, those idols. And of course, the question is, you know, where do these idols come from? Well, there's a couple places they could have come from, and maybe they came from both places. You remember when we studied chapter 31, that when they were fleeing from Laban with Rachel and uh, Leah, that Rachel stole her father's gods, and they were put in the in the saddlebag of, I guess, the camel. Um, what a what a pathetic thought, though. Remember, Laban comes back and says, or Laban chases them down and says, uh, I, "I want my gods back." Uh, can you imagine how pathetic that would look? Um, you know, and then the gods are in a saddlebag, and here here are your gods, uh, or maybe. Uh, also included, or could be um, from the previous chapter, chapter 34, verse 29. Remember that when they um, when they killed all those men in Shechem, they also they also pillaged the place. They also took a lot of the treasures. Possibly they took these gods. Um, but here they are with these these little idols. Why why do they have these little idols? And of course, it's easy for us to criticize them and think that's silly, despite the fact that or in in spite of the fact that God is there taking care of them. And yet, isn't it true that we have idols in our own lives? We would say that. One of my favorite description of the idols here in particular is made by Sinclair Ferguson. And he just says, idols are these things that, that uh, Jacob's household is holding on to just in case God doesn't come through for them. Let me say that again. These idols, they're holding on to them just in case God doesn't come through. And then, of course, we can rely on the idols. As I heard that, I I became convicted myself. What a powerful description of idols. Todd, what is it that, that you are holding on to, kind of on the side, you know, kind of in your little bag, kind of over here, tucked away? just in case God doesn't come through? Are you relying on resources? Like you're, you're making sure um, that there's, there's some resources that you have, some, some comforts you have, that just in case God doesn't uh, take care of you, you're going you're gonna to reach out for them. Or is it your reputation uh, that you're leaning on the way people see you uh, so that, you know, if things start going poorly or relationships, what, it can be so many different things. It's going to be different for each of us. But it's those things that we rely on or hold on to because we don't really trust God. Here in the submitting to God's sanctifying work, there was this putting away of those things. We've got to get rid of them completely. Let them go completely. But there's not just a putting away. There's a putting on. It says, put away foreign gods. And then he says, change your garments. And this was this is something new for us as we read uh, in our Bibles, beginning here in Genesis. It's certainly not something that isn't picked up later. Paul picks it up in Ephesians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 3, when he talks about putting off our old self 
and putting on like clothes, like putting on clothes, clothe yourselves with these other behaviors, these other aspects of God's character, clothe yourselves with these things that come from the Holy Spirit. And I think it's very important for us to remember that we don't just put off old things. If, if, if your battle with temptation, if my battle with temptation is only always about what I'm putting off, what I'm getting rid of in my life, and I'm not really thinking about putting on a new life, then I become a Pharisee. Then I just become this, this rule follower. I'm not in a relationship. I'm not embracing the new life that I have in Christ. And we think it makes me immediately think of 2 Corinthians 5:17, when the description of the believer is this: that you are a new creation in Christ. The old has gone and the new has come. And isn't it too true, brothers, that one of our struggles is certainly when we don't get rid of the old, when we kind of hold them around, have kind of a a closet, a little bag on the side, and just in case I need that, I'm going to reach for it. But it also comes when we don't intentionally put on the new clothing described in Colossians chapter 3 and intentionally uh, pursue living like that. Just like here, Jacob's household changing their garments. Let's put on new clothes. Let's look differently. And the third thing I want us to see in the sanctifying work that God is doing here in the submission that is happening in Jacob's life in verses one through four is this trusting, this trusting God. I I love what it says there in verse three, what Jacob says. He says, let us arise and go to Bethel so that I can make an altar and listen to what he says to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. He's submitting now to, to, to trusting. And that's, what's, that's what trust is. Trust is saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest myself fully in who God is. And I'm going to trust him with my future. I'm not going to require God to let me know everything that's going to happen. I'm just going to trust my future for him. And I've often thought in my own life or discussing it with some of you, this question, what, what part of my history shows God to be unfaithful? <laughs> what, what in my past suggests that I can't trust God? The truth is, brothers, as I look at my past, even with difficult trials and deep sorrows, I cannot look at a thing in my past and say that there is a particular reason that I shouldn't trust God because this happened. Now, amidst deep loss at times and deep sorrow, I can still see the hand of God taking care of me, taking care of my family. Now, there's some things for the future or things even presently that I'm tempted to, to seek other gods for, to seek other Uh, uh, solutions for. But as I look in the past, I'm just reminded I can trust the Lord. He has been with me wherever I have gone, and he has answered me in my distress. And then finally here in these first four verses, we see Jacob finally leading. Remember when Barton said that last week? He, He said in regards to Dinah, one of the frustrating things that you you see revealed in chapter 34 is that Jacob just didn't lead his family. And generally, as you look back, you just don't see him leading. You see him manipulating. You see him scheming. And here, you see him leading. So Jacob, verse two, so Jacob said to his household, 
man, that must have been a tough moment, right? You're, you're, an, you're an old man and you have not done the job you know you're supposed to do as a father, as a husband, but you're convicted that you ought to be doing it. And a lot of times, doesn't it happen that, that we, we end up in that place and we're older, we've been married for a while, our, our kids are older, our kids are maybe even out of the home, and we feel silly all of a sudden deciding, you know what, I need to do the things I should have done two decades ago or 10 years ago. And yet I'm telling you, brothers, it's never too late. It's never too late to start leading spiritually in your home. It's never too late to start leading spiritually uh, in your family, even if you have adult children. Uh, Certainly to lead by example, not lead by finger pointing, not lead by just dictating to them, but to actually lead, to actually express what God is doing in your life and what God is calling you to do. Here Jacob expressed that, even as awkward as it might have been, he began to lead his family. He was submitting to the sanctifying work that God was doing in his life. He was surrendering to it. Not only that, but we see in verses 5 through 15, You see Jacob submitting to God's word. Uh, God is speaking here. And and he's spoken to Jacob before, but there is something different here going on as you see the response of Jacob. So God is giving his word. Jacob is responding to that word. He's given a new name. Just like he was uh, previously, God says it again. Jacob, remember when he wrestled with, when Jacob wrestled with God, And Jacob said, you have to bless me. You have to bless me. This is chapter 32. And God says he's going to bless him. You're no longer going to be called Jacob, schemer. You're going to be called Israel, one who contends with God. And I'm going to give you a new name, a a new identity, really. And here he, he says it again, Jacob, man, you've been wandering from me for 10 years. You've been living by Shechem. Listen, remember, you're not Jacob. You're Israel. Be Israel. Live out the identity that I've given you. Be that person. I think I've shared with you before, brothers, that I have a a friend of mine who for years, whenever we left, he would look at me and he would say, Todd, you are a son of the king of kings. Go live like that. That's what God is saying to Jacob. Jacob, you're not schemer. You're Israel. I'm giving you a new name, a new identity. Jacob here also gets to see the name of God as El Shaddai. We we studied this previously in Genesis 17 when God presents himself to Abram and changes Abram's name to Abraham. He presents himself as God Almighty. In the Hebrew, that's El Shaddai. It's the all-powerful God. He's reminding him through his word, through speaking to him, Jacob, I I am all-powerful when I give you a new identity. I'm the one that does it. You can trust me. You have seen that. I am the creator. I am the one who controls everything. I am full of power despite everything around you. I know, brothers, we've leaned into that over these last six months, haven't we? Everything feels out of control. The pandemic has caused us all kinds of concerns, health concerns, uh, problems with family. Uh, we're, we're, we're debating and arguing over whether we wear masks. We're frustrated over uh, our businesses. Um, uh, we feel in some ways that we're working harder than ever and it's producing less. We're wondering when this is all going to end. Not only that, but we have uh, uh, incredible tensions within 
um, our culture within the United States, and it's it's all fueled by an, an absolutely irresponsible media, whether it's left or right. It's just irresponsible journalism. And all those things are happening to us, and we feel out of control. We're not sure. what what Where do we turn to? Oh, we turn to El Shaddai, all-powerful God. And God is not shaken. And I'm to tell you, brothers, God is not worried about the election in November. Not one bit. And I don't know who God is going to set as the ruler or rulers over this nation. But I know from God's word that he is the one who sets up kings and deposes kings. It's him. I'm not saying we shouldn't vote. But I am saying this. It's not up to us. God is in control. He's going to care for us no matter who is in the White House come January. God is all-powerful. He also here, in, in hearing God's word, hears again this renewed promise. You see that in verse 11. He says, I'm going to make you, you're going to be fruitful and multiply. I'm going to make you a great nation. And a company of nations shall come from you. And kings shall come from you. I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And actually here, the phrase is a company of nations is goyim. We need to be reminded over and over again that even going back to the Old Testament, um, it wasn't, God's promise wasn't just that he was going to make Israel great, but that he was going to make the promises of those who follow God. He was going to make them a nation. He was going to make them a congregation. Uh, these things, this idea of, a, of, a, of the gospel going out to all ethnicities was something that was very, from the very beginning. He says, kings are going to come from you. And that certainly is a reference to uh, King David and, and, and that Davidic line. But ultimately, a reference to the Messiah, the king for this kingdom is going to come. Not just the Israelite kingdom, but God's kingdom that encompasses, again, all ethnicities and all cultures. And I'm going to give you this land. Here's the word of God. And, and here's Jacob, now Israel, submitting Submitting to the word of God, really receiving these things. And then we see in verses 16 through 29 or the rest of the chapter, we see him submitting to God's providence, to God's sovereignty. You know, I know the story we like. It's certainly the story I like. Hey, if I finally give my whole life to God, if I finally surrender all my idols and then totally put on the new clothes that I have in Jesus Christ, totally put on everything the Holy Spirit offers me in, in character and new living. If I do those things, if I, if I trust God fully, if I lead my family, if I submit to his word, then I'm going to be blessed. And then how do I define blessing? Certainly God blessed Jacob here. I define blessing often, well, things are going to go well with me. Things are going to go great for my kids. My kids are all going to follow the Lord in the timing that I want them to. Um, maybe my business isn't going to make me wealthy, but I'm not going to struggle with unemployment or a failed business. Um, I'm not going to wonder um, if I can keep my house or how I am going to get a job or how am I going to get some kind of employment. Uh, my, my assumption is if I if I do all that, if I if I if I really submit to God's sanctifying work and to his word, that life is just going to, I don't know, be easy. Well, that's not what happens to Jacob. 
It's not what happens to us a lot of times. We still experience heartache and great loss. And as you see here in the, in the verses that follow, um, something deeply disturbing and, and, a, and a very difficult loss happens to Jacob. Here is Rachel dying as she has Benjamin. And, and Rachel was, was so dear to Jacob. And now he's going to lose his wife. It wasn't uncommon to lose them in childbirth, but certainly sad. He just, Rachel was special to him. He's going to lose his father. Now his father had a full life, but he's going to bury his father. He's already buried Deborah, who, who had been with the family going all the way back to Abraham. Um, these are, are deep losses and deep heartaches that he experiences. And God in his providence, which we, we don't fully understand, we can't always comprehend why God allows what he allows. That's, that's still the reality of what we experience. God is in control, and yet there's a pandemic. God is in control, and yet I'm wondering if I can get a job. God is in control, and I just lost this person that's dear to me. Those things are reality of our experience. And then not only that, but we see in verse 22 that the continued um, consequences of, of, of Jacob failing to leave his, fa- leave his family, of Jacob's wandering from the Lord, of Jacob's own sin that's now becoming the sins of his own son. And just so we're clear here in verse 22, when it says that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and we, we know that's actually Rachel's servant, we understand there that, that this wasn't just some kind of act of passion in the moment. It's like they two fell in love with each other. No, this was a, this was a calculated uh, move, manipulative move by Reuben. Reuben, I can imagine being the firstborn, but knowing that he belonged to Leah and knowing how much his dad loved Rachel and, uh, and, and understanding the culture of that time, knew that to take Bilhah to, 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 to have sex with her um, uh, was a way to defile her in her father's house and therefore make her um, not special to Jacob. And maybe there was a concern by Reuben that, that now she's going to be the one special instead of my own mother. It was also a power move. It was, a, it was you, we see it later with, with David's uh, son. It was a power move to say, hey, I need that birthright. I'm the firstborn. I need to be in charge. And you just wonder if Reuben is adopting the manipulative behavior and sin of his father and now carrying out in his own household. These are just consequences that are happening after, after Jacob has given his whole self to the Lord. And yet he's still experiencing these things. That's tough. And yet we see the faith of Jacob played out right here in the middle of these heartaches, of the consequences. You'll notice in verse 18, and I'll tell you, brothers, this is part of what ripped me personally. Notice in verse 18 that, that, uh, uh, that Rachel, and, and she was dying. She, she says, I'll call my son Ben-Oni. And Ben-Oni means son of my sorrow. And instead, 
Jacob says, no, I want to name him Benjamin or Benjamin, which means son of my right hand or son of the blessing. Son who is, is special to me, who is dear to me, who will sit at my right hand. You might want to say, well, maybe that's just, you know, Jacob doing his manipulative thing. Um, I would agree with, with Sinclair Ferguson as he um, exegetes this chapter, that if you look at verse 21, you'll notice that for the first time, uh, Jacob is referred to as Israel, not the name change. Certainly he's been told by God, you know, I am his longer Jacob, but now Israel. But this is the first place where he's just called Israel in the narrative. Something has changed in uh, Jacob, in Israel. And I think what's changed is that he is submitting himself to God's providence. He doesn't know yet how Benjamin, how Benjamin will be a blessing to him. He doesn't know yet how, how all that's taking place will somehow work together for God's good. But in faith, he is saying amidst this deeply heartbreaking moment of losing his wife, his dear wife, he says, no, I don't want this son to be named Ben-Oni, ben, uh, son of sorrow, son of my sorrow. No, by faith, I'm going to call him Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand, son of my blessing. I'm going to believe that God is in control. And though in the midst of my tears, in the midst of my sorrow, I can't see it now. But I know, I know, as it says in Romans 8, 28, we know, we know that everything works together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. And so he's going to live in, in submission to God's providence, trusting that maybe even not on this side of heaven, but someday when he's with his Savior, he'll He'll understand the beautiful providence of God, that he is a good father, that he is El Shaddai, the all-powerful one. Now, brothers, I can't help but wrap up this section of Genesis of looking at Jacob, because now we're going we're gonna to start to shift towards the life of Joseph and looking at that. I can't help but wrap that up without making sure that we grasp this phrase, the God of Jacob that appears so many times in scripture. I think in, in, uh, in the book of Psalms alone, it appears 15 or 16 times. It appears in the New Testament. It appears in Isaiah. God refers to himself as the God of Jacob. Why, why would he do that? What is the significance of that, even as we study this? I think it's powerful for us, and I want us every time we read it in the book of Psalms or we see it in Isaiah, or we see it in the book of Acts, I want us to remember our study here. And I want us to remember what, what when God says, I am the God of Jacob, what he's saying. There's an article by, by Arthur Pink, a 19th century, excuse me, 20th century theologian. Many of you may have read his books, The Attributes of God, a very significant and powerful book. But when he talks about who the God of Jacob is, as we understand it from Genesis, he says four things about that. And I have them listed for you here in the notes. The God of Jacob is the God of election. 
Remember, Jacob was the second born. <laughs> Jacob should not have been chosen. And then, of course, Jacob's behavior, his manipulation. He, there's so many things that should have disqualified Jacob from being chosen by God. And yet God is the one who is merciful to the one he chooses to have mercy for. And, and, and God's election is not something that should make us angry. Not at all. Instead, it should humble us and make us realize, wow, that God would choose any of us. Certainly we see here's the God of election again. Now, I'm not trying to speak uh, about some theological issues of predestination. I'm trying to speak to the fact that none of us ever, ever, there's nothing in us that would ever have God choose us. In fact, everything in us would disqualify us from God loving us, from God saving us, from God reaching out to us. But when we see the God of Jacob, we're reminded he is the God who elects us, who chooses us. He's also the God of all grace. Again, everything that was going on in Jacob's life should have suggested, man, this guy just needs, God just needs to let him go. God just needs to bring condemnation to his life. He deserves so much punishment. But God is not just merciful to Jacob. He's a God of all grace to Jacob. And not only that, he's the God of infinite patience. Look at all the history we've studied here. This whole life of Jacob. And what have we seen God do? Patiently work in Jacob's life. Patiently pursue and patiently bring grace in his life. And then finally, when we see the phrase of the God of Jacob, we need to remember that that means he's the, the God of transforming power. Certainly, God just chose Jacob. Certainly, God was all grace to Jacob. Certainly, God was a God of infinite patience to Jacob. But he also transformed Jacob. You know, yes, God receives us as we are, but praise the Lord, he doesn't leave us that way. No, he's transforming us. He's, he's making us different. It's not just outward behavior, but he's actually, he's actually giving us a new heart, as it says in Ezekiel. And so brothers, I, I don't want us to lose sight of that. When we see the phrase God of Jacob, I want us to remember this story. This is a guy who who should have never been chosen by God, given grace by God, and, and been transformed by God. And yet God does it. And then God turns around and says, I'm actually going to name myself the God of Jacob, the God of schemers, the God of people like you and me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you so much for speaking these powerful truths into our lives through your word. Thank you for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit that's taking place even now. Thank you, Lord, that your providence, though we may not understand it even at this time, is, is always at work to bring about your good. You are a good Father. Oh, Father, give us by the power of your Spirit. Uh, do that transforming work in us that we might submit to your sanctifying work that we might submit daily to your word, that we might submit to your providence, knowing that you are in control. Oh, Father, do that for us. God of Jacob, be our God. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, brothers.